Please rise for the reading of God's word. We will be in Luke 13, 10 through 35. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit from 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hand on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, do, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whose Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall we compare it? Is it like, it's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, well, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you have come from. Depart from me, all workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I must finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. In 2 Samuel 15, we read one of the darkest hours of David's kingdom. Absalom, David's son, after some bad things have happened, you can go back and read the story, he ends up on David's bad side. And so he conspires against his father. For four years, Absalom secretly drums up support, convincing the people of the kingdom in every tribe that he, Absalom, will do for them what David isn't. The kingdom has experienced prosperity like they never have. The people of the kingdom have experienced prosperity like they never have before under David's rule. And yet Absalom plays on their desires and he deceptively steals the hearts of the people, it says. And at the critical moment, all the people announce Absalom is king. David is the rightful king. David is God's chosen man. Everyone knows this. God has not chosen someone else. Their rebellion could never overturn the objective fact of David's kingship, yet David's people act as if he is not king. A lie. A conspiracy was fabricated about David's kingdom rule. A lie that he had failed to extend that rule where it truly had been extended. A lie that it would fail to continue to extend as it should. A lie that David was exclusive in a way that withheld righteous judgment to the people that ought to have it when what was really being held back was their selfish ambitions. People wanted what they wanted, and so it became easy to believe the lie. Believing the lie blinded people to the greatness, the true greatness of that kingdom. Listen, Christ and his kingdom is a fulfillment of David and his kingdom. Where David was lacking, Jesus is not, and will not, and cannot be. Absalom's conspiracy is really Satan's conspiracy. Satan's conspiracy in the garden, Satan's conspiracy in Absalom, and it's a conspiracy that is alive and well today. Satan can't change the reality of Christ's rule. Instead, he wants to convince us that that rule is something other than what it really is. So that we'd act and live as if it's not true. So that we'd even rail against it and somehow think we're doing good in doing so. Somehow think we're righteous, that we're right when in fact what we are promoting, what we're pushing for is selfish ambition. Listen, Satan wants to steal your heart. That's what he wants to do. 
He wants to steal your heart and for you to think that somehow you're doing good. You're doing right. One of the ways Satan does this is by making Jesus' kingdom seem exclusive where in fact it is expansive and convincing us that it ought to be expansive where in fact it must be exclusive. So two realities, two realities I want to talk about this morning that may surprise us when we realize what Jesus, how Jesus himself describes his own kingdom. Two realities. First, the way in which Jesus' kingdom is surprisingly expansive. And second, the way in which Jesus' kingdom is surprisingly exclusive. Well, first, we see some ways in which Jesus' kingdom is surprisingly expansive in verses 10 through 21. First, uh, the first way that it's surprisingly expansive is this. The kingdom is straightening out all creation. We see this in the story of this woman with this disabling spirit. You see, Jesus' invisible reign produces visible results. Jesus connects the disabling spirit directly to the physical ailment. Do you see that in the text? Crookedness is connected to Satan's binding of her. What does it say? There was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. The disabling spirit creates a physical ailment. The two cannot be divided from one another. They are in some way, look, I, I don't know that I can explain to you how they're connected, but it's clear from the text that they are in some way connected to one another. We often divide the spiritual and the physical in a way that the Bible just doesn't. We put our tangible issues, you know, down here. This is, this is kind of the tangible earthly stuff. And we put our spiritual stuff up here and we draw this horizontal line to divide the two, the spiritual above and the earthly below. But that's not how the Bible describes it. They're different, yes, but but they're not, there's not a solid line between the two. Maybe there's a dotted line. They're connected. They're related. The invisible and the visible go together. Consider from the beginning how this is described, how it's described this way. In Genesis 3, at the fall, the sin of man, what does it do? It doesn't just cause difficulty in us or between us or between us and God, but it actually creates chaos in the creation itself, right? The ground itself is messed up by our sin, our spiritual rebellion, disrupts the physical creation. There are numerous verses in the New Testament that show this connection as well. Romans 8, 20 through 23, it says that all of creation is bound under the weight of our sin. Whoa. Have you thought about that? That the dirt and the dust and the trees and the birds and the animals, the leaves that are popping up on the tree this week groans under the weight of our sin. 
There's a connection here. Acts 3.21, Paul ties Christ's reign to restoring all things. Ephesians 1.10, Jesus says, it says that Jesus will unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth, both the invisible and the visible, the spiritual and the earthly. Colossians 1.20 says that he's reconciling all things on heaven and in, or in heaven and on earth. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, it says that that in Christ, God is reconciling the world. The world there is, is in Greek, is cosmos. It's, all, it's not just the, the, the physical created things like this pulpit or this floor or, or this building or, or the dust outside, but it is the spiritual realm, the spiritually, uh, spiritual beings that are created as well. All of it, all of it, Christ is doing this reconciling work in. There are things that he is delivering by redeeming, and there's ways in which he's delivering by judging, and both go together. The Bible does not draw, or let me say this, the Bible does draw a solid line somewhere, though. You know, I said that it doesn't draw a solid line between the spiritual and the physical, but it does draw a solid line, but the line isn't, doesn't go this way, it goes this way. There is either the domain of darkness or there is the kingdom of Christ. That's the dividing line. And there are spiritual and physical things in each domain. And the decision you have to make is which domain do you want to be in? Do you want to be in the domain of darkness where all is, becomes chaos and disorder? Or do you want to be in the kingdom of Christ where him and his victory is restoring all things? Through Christ's victory over death, all creation, friends, is being straightened out. This woman's healing is a picture of that which Christ will do, not only in his death, but in his resurrection, in his defeat of death. On that on that Sabbath, when he lays in the grave, he binds Satan. He looses his kingdom on the earth. We see glimpses of it in his life and ministry. We, we can see it happening now in, in different ways. In Hebrews 2, even, we, we read that everything is subject to him, and though we can't see it all right now, we know that it is true because we can see him and we can see what he has done in defeating death. One day it'll be fully consummated. So, Jesus' invisible reign does produce invisible, or visible results, but also Jesus' reign upholds his creation order. Look, look where uh, the argument goes, what Jesus says. There's an argument here from less to great. If you'd loose an animal to give it water on the Sabbath, should not this woman bound for so long be loosed on the Sabbath? What he's saying is, look, if you've got an animal and it's tied up over here eating some grass or whatever, and it needs to get some water today, it's, it's uh, the Sabbath day, you would untie its leash, if you will, and you would lead it over to the water so it can get a drink because it needs water every single day. If you would do that for your animal, then why can't I do that for this woman? Why can't I give her life? If, I would show, if you would show compassion to animals, why would you not show compassion to humans? See, what he's saying is, you're inverting the God's order in the most fundamental way when you do this. 
you're putting animals above humans. See, they're not applying the most basic truths about the Sabbath in all of creation. That man alone was created in God's image and man was given dominion over all of creation. Jesus' redemptive reign works against sin, not creation. I want you to understand this because I think this is a point that is often confused in our, in our society and in the church today. Jesus' redemptive reign works against sin, not against creation itself. We've got to recognize the difference. The kingdom doesn't negate the created order. Rather, it upholds it. It even restores it. It even enhances it. But it never works against or away from the creation order. It always works with and towards it. Sin and Satan are the common enemies of both God's redemptive work and his creative work. You understand that Satan is not just against Christ's redemptive work. He was from the beginning against Christ's creative work in the garden. And he still is today. This false competition with creation order is one of Satan's oldest tricks. See, God ordered things in the garden, God, man, animals, right? God, man, all the rest of creation. And what did Satan do by coming as a serpent to deceive Eve? He flipped it. Animals, man, God. He sought to flip it under the guise of of what he called freedom. He created bondage. Just as Absalom, under the guise of what he said was freedom and good for you, created unrighteous action in David's kingdom. Satan wants, us to, convince, wants to convince us that this is good when really it's evil. But God didn't just come and stomp the serpent, did he? Listen, think about this. God didn't, could have just come and stomped the serpent, but he didn't. How did he do it? He became man. He became a man and crushed the head of the serpent. And then in Romans 16, what does it say? That even now he is crushing Satan under whose feet? Under his feet? No, under the church's feet, under your feet. God has restored the creation order. On the cross and in the grave and through his church, he's restoring the creation order that it is God and then his people and then everything else. We say that Christ has set us free and that's true and praise God, that's wonderful. But under this banner, Satan sometimes slips things that don't belong. Things that end up shackling us, even if we think we're being freed. Listen, there's no, no freedom will come from disregarding God's created order. There's no freedom in disregarding God's created order for marriage or for families. There's no freedom in disregarding God's created order for sexual relationships. There's no freedom in disregarding God's created order for genders or gender roles. There's no freedom in it. The world will want to tell you there's freedom in it. The world will want to tell you that they're setting you free from that oppressive, old, outdated, outmoded ways of doing things. 
Jesus is outdated. The garden isn't outdated. It's not outdated. Genesis 1 and 2 aren't outdated. Listen, what they're selling is a house that may look good for a day, but it'll crumble in a few minutes because it's built on sand. God does not build his redemption, his redemptive reign and kingdom on any other foundation than his created order because it's the only firm foundation there is. Jesus' gospel is not less than our justification by faith in Christ's work, but, but that's not all it is. And I want you to understand that. His kingdom is not merely those who he has saved, but he is setting the broken bones. He's restoring the order, not to take us back to the garden, but to move us forward to an even more glorious future based on that order. He doesn't create something good, friends, and then abandon it. He created a good world, and he doesn't create good things and then abandon them. No, he restores and redeems them. He created you good. And there may be a dozen things that you don't like about yourself. But he is not in the business of abandoning things. He's in the business of restoring them and redeeming them and enhancing them, growing them, perfecting them. And that's, that's you as well, right? And you may not like how he's created you. You may not like some aspect of, uh, uh, of who you are in, in the sense of, of how you were created, but, but, but a sovereign God knows what's best. He's made you how he's made you, and he's put you in particular places, in a particular time, in a particular season, in a particular place geographically for a reason. We ought not run from that, but we ought to ask, God, how are you wanting to redeem the sinful aspects of that and put that back together as he put back together this woman and use it for your glory and for your kingdom because that is good. It's good for me and it's good for the world and it's to your glory. Well, the kingdom is... It's straightening out all creation, but, but, but I want you to understand also that it's expansive in another way. It's also spreading throughout all creation. We see this in verses 18 through 21 and these two little illustrations that, that Jesus gives, these two short parables that illustrate some similar points about God's kingdom. This, these, this parable, um, they're, they're connected directly to how we're to understand what's happened before, and we see that because it's, he says, it says, he said, therefore, he said, therefore, like, like Luke is tying this to what happened before. And by way of comparison, he wants to illustrate some qualities of the kingdom. The first is this, the kingdom spreads from seemingly inconsequential to unmistakable. It spreads from seemingly inconsequential to unmistakable. The, the basic point of this first illustration is that it starts like something very small, like this little mustard seed. 
known for its small size, right? But it transforms into this massive tree large enough for birds to rest in it. And Jesus is leaning on some Old Testament images here. First in Daniel 4, there's a similar image of a tree that represents Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom as it, as it actually became shelter for many other nations, but that kingdom was not ultimately committed to Christ. And so we, what we see there in Daniel is that that kingdom gets chopped down. But in Ezekiel 17, there's this other image that's similar, and there's this little sprig that's taken from this cedar, and it's planted, it says, on the top of the mountain of Israel, and it grows massive so that all the birds of every kind can nest in it. The image there is, is of one of the Davidic line, a descendant of David, King David, planted on a mountain which is typically a depiction of where God's presence is in the Old Testament. And this kingdom grows to bring peace and to bring refuge to people from all nations. Friends, Jesus' kingdom, it starts small. It started small, and it started seemingly inconsequential. Compared to the Roman Empire, what Jesus was doing was nothing, it seemed. But yet here we stand, and where is Rome? right? It ends up being large and comprehensive. But there's another thing being illustrated here. The kingdom spreads from apparently nothing to permeate everything. The main thrust is that uh, the effect of the kingdom is, the, is, is a permeation of all things in and by the kingdom. Now, in this illustration of the leaven, there are some who, in considering it, argue that the point here is not how Jesus' kingdom fills all things, but that it does. In other words, what they would argue for is that really what this is trying to say is there's, there's kind of two snapshots. There's a snapshot at the start of the race, all the competitors you know at the starting line, and then there's a snapshot at the end of the race, the finish line at the end of the race, but it's not really trying to illustrate something about how the race was run. I personally, I'll, I'll just tell you what I think. I, I find that hard to believe, that it's not trying to tell us something about how the race is run, especially since Jesus picked leaven. In context, we've just seen that he was talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, right, last, last week. And here we have the leaven of the kingdom instead. The leaven of the Pharisees is bad. It's you don't see it at first, and yet it, it starts in our hearts, this hypocrisy, and it fills our whole lives, it fills our whole person, it corrupts everything. And here you have this leaven of the kingdom that is also filling all things. And so it seems reasonable to me to see that Jesus is saying at least something of how this happens, that, that one, it, it's gradual rather than instantaneous, it happens gradually rather than instantly. Just as the tree image beforehand is something that slowly grows and fills and spreads and more and more birds come to nest in it, so too the, the leaven slowly fills the loaves. And the other thing that I think it is telling us is that the way in which this, the kingdom spreads is, and permeates all things is it's internal to external, not the other way around. 
Just as the leaven of the Pharisees corrupts the heart and then it's seen in their lives, eventually, so too, the kingdom starts internally and then it spreads and becomes external rather than vice versa. It's not something that comes uh, from outside and coerces some sort of internal change, but it's an internal change that then will produce an outside consequence, an outside effect, an external effect. The last few years, uh, we've been making homemade pizza on occasion at our house. My wife learned to make uh, pizza dough, um, and then we, we make our own pizzas rather than, you know, going and buying Pizza Hut or whatever. And I always know when we're going to have homemade pizza because I get home and there's one particular bowl that will be on the stove with, you know, a towel over it. And that's how I know. As soon as I walk in, I know it's pizza night. Because I know that inside of that bowl, the dough is rising. The leaven is doing its work. It's having an effect. I can't see it. I don't even look under the the towel. I'd probably get in trouble if I did. But I know it's there, and I know it's doing its thing. And sometimes when it gets to be about dinner time, Amanda goes and peeks, and she's like, not ready yet. It's not risen enough. The leaven is still doing its work. Now, 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 if she peeks under there and she goes, oh, it's not ready yet, does that mean that there must not be any leaven in the dough? No. Does that mean we should abandon the homemade pizza? No. Doesn't mean that the pizza dough doesn't exist. Doesn't mean that the leaven isn't working or that we won't have pizza that night. There's a temptation to look at the relatively small amount that we can see perceive, and to think, this isn't what I expected the kingdom to be like right now. There's a temptation to look around our world, to get on social media, to get on the news, to get on whatever, and to think, I'm reading this about the kingdom, but this isn't, this isn't what I thought the kingdom would look like right now. Shouldn't it be different? Shouldn't there be more? Shouldn't it be whatever? So what a lot of people do then is they assume that the kingdom hasn't come, that it isn't progressing, that the leaven isn't working or isn't there. I know, I know that Jesus will do this, but this leaven dough on the stove, it's not, it's not working how I think it ought to. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to call up, you know, I expect that my wife will call up dominoes instead. And someone will just show up one day, one, you know, later on with a, with a dominoes pizza already hot and ready to go. Here you go. We think that way about the kingdom, right? That someday Jesus will just show up and poof, the kingdom is here. Friends, he said the kingdom is right now. It is here now. It is at hand. He has brought it. He has inaugurated it in his death and resurrection. And it may not have been developing how you think it ought to. But we all ought to maybe have a little humility in, in analyzing Jesus' kingdom that he won how he wants to bring it about, when he wants to bring it about, the ways in which he wants to bring it about. We all ought to have a little more faith and a little more hope that when Jesus says he'll do something, he is and will do it, right? And so we ask the question, does his kingdom in and through us have a straightening effect? 
if it is to permeate all things, and if it really is that ex- expansive, it really can do all that Jesus says it can do, is, does his kingdom in you and through you have a straightening effect? Is your life being straightened out? Is your work being straightened out? Is your marriage and your family being straightened out as you surrender to the king? As the spirit, which he's promised to all those in his kingdom, with its power is in you doing its work, is it having a straightening effect or is it not? Because I can assure you the the problem is not with the king. And listen, it doesn't happen in a perfectly linear way. I get that. Jesus makes us straight with jagged lines, right? And we do this. If you're like me, I do this. But it does move in one direction. And so we got to ask ourselves if, if the kingdom is not having a straightening effect in and through us. Are we trying to sit on the throne? The throne that only Christ is supposed to sit on. And that brings us to the second aspect of what we're talking about this morning with his, with his kingdom, that, that the kingdom isn't just surprisingly expansive, but it's also surprisingly exclusive in a particular way. And first, the first way is this. We see this in verses 22 through 30. The king is the only way to enter it. And Jesus has asked this question while he's heading to Jerusalem. It says he's, he's going to Jerusalem to accomplish what we know he's to, to accomplish. Remember, he set his face to do so. But that's the context in which this question comes. And the question is this, will those who are saved be few? Will those who are saved be few then? And his answer, his answer is interesting, and there are sort of three keys, I think, to his response. The first key is this. There are a few entrances. In fact, there's just one, faith in Christ. There are a few entrances. Jesus doesn't answer the question directly, nor, I want you to notice this, nor does he say that few will be saved. He does not say that. Never once does he say that few will be saved. He does, however, say that the door is narrow. The kingdom is not exclusive to a few people, but the way into the kingdom is exclusive. The door is that door which, by which the patriarchs and the prophets were admitted, as we see in verse 28. The, patriarch, the patriarchs and the prophets, they're in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets are in the kingdom. What door is that? It's faith in Christ. Patriarchs and prophets look forward to Christ, we're told. The man asking this question, the people that Jesus is speaking to, they actually get to see Jesus in the flesh, see him right now doing his kingdom work. We have the greatest privilege. We have the privilege of looking back Knowing him as resurrected king, we have the privilege of of seeing the work of the Spirit already in the world for 2,000 years. Whichever it is, though, we need to understand that faith in Christ is the only way into the kingdom. 
the only way. But there's a second key here. The, key, the second key is this. Don't worry about how many. Worry about you. Don't worry about how many. Worry about you. You are thinking about how many might get shut out, Jesus says to this man, when in fact you are being shut out. Right now. If you don't act, if you don't respond rightly to this entrance, me, Jesus Christ, Jesus is saying, you are going to be shut out. Why are you concerned about whether many or few will get in when you aren't getting in? And that's a question that we need to ask ourselves as well, right? That's a question we need to present to other people. They say, well, this is too exclusive. This Jesus thing is too exclusive. Why are you concerned about that? Why aren't you concerned about you? We need to understand that for the original audience here, Theophilus, the the person that Luke is primarily writing to, he's in this window of time between when Christ inaugurated his kingdom And when the Jewish system, when these Jews that Jesus is speaking to, their whole system is going to be finally torn down. It's the last year of the fig tree that we saw at the very end of last week's passage. And that tree needs to bear fruit or else it's going to get chopped down. And for that generation that Jesus is speaking to right here, they need to understand what Jesus is saying. Look, the door will eventually get shut. Not that people can't be, continue to be saved through faith in Christ. We know that's true because here we are. But for those in that particular immediate context who were Jews, who ought to have, if they were truly following the patriarchs and the prophets' lead, ought to have had faith in Christ, they're at risk of missing it. So don't worry about how many worry about you. The third thing is this. One entrance doesn't make it a less effective entrance. Guys, I want you to get this. Christians, we need to understand this. When people attack Christianity and say, well, it's too exclusive. How can it just be Jesus? That's too exclusive. One entrance doesn't make the entrance less effective. I'd argue that makes it more effective. Let me give you an illustration. If we're in a building that's on fire, and let's say the The building appears to have a dozen doors around the room. This room has a dozen doors around it, let's imagine. And everyone is yelling, get out! Save yourself! It doesn't matter which door you pick, just just get out of a door and get out of here. This, This building is coming down. But you knew there was only one door that actually led outside. All the other ones just kept people inside. Now, which is more exclusive? Which will be more exclusive, truly? The people who say, just get out of any door. Or the one who says, no, you must go through that door. Only that door will save you. Only that door gets you outside. Will everyone go, oh, hold on, hold on. I know this building is coming down, but time out. That's really exclusive. You're really hurting the feelings of these other doors and the people trying to get out of them. That's very unkind. That's quite unloving to say that. No. Of of course not. 
the most loving thing you could do is to rattle someone's shoulders and say, that's not a door. Seek to enter by the true door. Seek to show people the true door. One door is not less effective. A false door is less effective. So the king is the only, the only way to enter, but that's not really where the exclusivity begins. The exclusivity actually begins with this. The king is, the, is only crowned one way. This is what I want you to understand. You can only enter one way through Jesus Christ, but he could only win, he could only unlock that door, if you will, in one way. It's not just you that must submit to Christ, it's Christ who first submitted to the Father. The Father said, there's one way to do this. Jesus said, man, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, please, Lord, let it pass, but your will, not my will, be done. And, Jesus, and God said, the Father said, Nope, there's only one way, the cross. That's it. God's one plan was to bring the kingdom through the cross. So what do we see? We see this, this interaction happen. The Pharisees come and they say, get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. I, I find it very hard to believe that these Pharisees were really looking out, out for Jesus' well-being, you know? Like they were just like, oh, Jesus, we just really care about you. Get, get, get away, you might die. I'm pretty sure, whether they were working with Herod or not, I don't know, but I think both of them just wanted Jesus out of their hair. He was causing some problems for them. And so Jesus responds, he says, Call, tell Herod, tell that fox. I want you to understand, this is not like a cute little saying that Jesus says, like, ooh, no, this is, this is like an incredibly disrespectful insult. Why don't you just let that sit for a second? Jesus is looking at the powers that be, and he's saying, no, that, that man is deceptive and cunning. He is evil and wicked. Jesus' points, Jesus' point, rather, is in verse 32 is this, he, is that no one tells him or determines for him what he's going to do. You tell him, he can't tell me what to do. I, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will finish my course. Nevertheless, he says, nevertheless, I will actually leave. See, the point Jesus is making is this. I'm going to leave, but it's not because Herod tells me to, but it's because the Father has given me a plan and I must accomplish it. It means I have to go to Jerusalem. I can't stay here. I've got to go there. So Jesus wants to make this point that he is not leaving because he's submitting to what Herod says, what that fox says, but because he's submitting to the will of the Father because there's only one way, there's only one plan that God has to bring the kingdom, and it's through the cross. The king must die, must climb over the flames that are filling the room to unlock that one door that leads outside for us. It's exclusive, but also exclusive in another way. God's one people are those who are gathered under Christ, and it's only those who are under Christ that are His people. Even still, even though Jesus will be killed there, 
he, his heart is, is, is that he would, could save all of them. Oh, Israel, Israel, even still, even now, even with all that's happened, I would gather you under my wings if you would just come under my wings. The heart of Christ is mercy for us. The result is that the house is forsaken. Instead, it says, your house is forsaken. You've rejected me. Jesus is quoting here Psalm 118, the same psalm that calls the people to seek refuge in God and not in man, the same psalm that declares that they have rejected the cornerstone. You reject the cornerstone, your house is going to crumble. They'll sing out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Palm Sunday, and a few days later they will kill that Christ. But Christ will have a people. The cornerstone will build a house and he will open up the door so many can enter. You seek refuge in him and he will save you. But if you reject him, he will judge you. Jesus paid the exclusive price so that the nations can be saved, right? What does it say back in verse 29? People will come from east and west, from north and south. Jesus is not exclusive to keep people out. Jesus paid the exclusive price so that the kingdom would expand. The exclusivity of the kingdom is not in who gets to be kingdom citizens, but in who gets to be king. That's where it's exclusive. Not Herod, not the Pharisees, not you or me, no one but Christ. Listen, if you want to sit on the throne, then you won't have a seat at the table. That's what Jesus says. Look, you want to sit on the throne? Great. You won't have a seat at the table in my kingdom. We don't get to make the rules or call the shots. That would be the kingdom of darkness. Look, if I made all the rules and called all the shots, I promise you that would be a kingdom of darkness. Every time. I'm too sinful. But if you would relinquish the throne of your life to the true king, realizing that it isn't your throne anyways, you're just a steward. You're not the king. Then you would readily be ushered into the great feast of the king. You see, the crown must be exclusive for the kingdom to be expansive. I want you to get this. The crown must be exclusive for the kingdom to be expansive. It's the only way it can work. In the beginning, God created a garden, and he made Adam, and he put him in the garden, and he gave him a job to work and to keep it and to cultivate it, right? And that, that the garden, and thus the kingdom of God would expand and fill the earth, that the earth would be filled with the presence and the glory of God. But Satan came, and he stole Eve's heart. He spread the lie that God's rule need not be exclusive. You can rule as well. That we could reign alongside him rather than under him. The good reign of God in the garden was shattered by that kind of thinking. We lost our position under God's just reign and we came under Satan's corruption. Instead, creation, which was supposed to be cared for by us, was turned into chaos by us. 
But Christ has come, and he is the new Adam, dying to take our disobedience, crediting his obedience to us. And that's all true, but that's not all that's true. And this is what I want you to get this morning. Christ not only redeems us, but he is restoring all of creation, things seen and things unseen. He's putting the pieces back together again. Just as he straightened the woman's back, what Satan was, has bound, he loosens even today, even as he has bound Satan. And we still experience, friends, the pains of that sin. But one day, we won't. One day, he'll come back. And the job will be done. And in between, in between the mystery, the mystery of the purpose of his will is this, that we, the church, are part of the project. We get to be part of the project. That for some reason, in the mystery of, of his will, he has chosen to straighten things through us, to use us crooked as we are, to put straight what's crooked. In Christ, he restores us to our position of reigning with him, just as Adam once did a royal priesthood, the Bible says. That's what we are. To bring Christ's reign to all things so that it would permeate all things. Let's pray. Lord, no matter who rules,